Welcome to the Daily in Christ podcast. I'm Mark Van Oos, and I am so glad that uh, you are listening in to this time together as we fellowship together around the Word of God, the Bible. And it's not just a study about the Bible, because the Bible's chief subject is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I am excited about this course of study we're going to be embarking on starting today in the New Testament book of Hebrews. And I'll tell you what, the book of Hebrews is unique in several different ways. First of all, the chief subject of the book of Hebrews is the Savior himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our high priest. He is the one who is the perfect Savior, the God of all. And so that is really where Hebrews is uh, centered in and locked in on the Lord Jesus Christ. I like to call the book of Hebrews the Magna Carta of the New Covenant. If you want to understand the New Covenant better, study the book of Hebrews. In fact, no other book in the Bible deals with the New Covenant in such a great depth as the book of Hebrews. Now, you would think that because of that, uh, most Christians would make a great point of regularly getting into the book of Hebrews. Sadly, however, the book of Hebrews and the New Covenant at large are perhaps the most neglected and misunderstood of all the great biblical truths. This is really tragic because it deprives multitudes of Christians the full enjoyment of all that God intended for their Christian life. You know, I'm reminded of a classic book written many years ago by the Chinese martyr Watchman Nee called The Normal Christian Life. And he was quick to qualify what he meant by normal Christian life. He didn't mean the average Christian life, which would define the way most Christians live it, which is way below the normal that God describes in the Bible. Remember what Jesus said in John 10. He said, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. So normal in Christianity is, is the more abundant life the Lord Jesus Christ uh, came to offer. Now, think about that. Does that describe your own spiritual condition, your own Christian condition? Let me say that perhaps a key reason why uh, you may feel like that's lacking in some degree is perhaps um, not really fully understanding the wonderful riches and resources of the New Covenant and uh, not really having a good hold of what the book of Hebrews has to offer for us. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3 says this, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Let me say that again. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? First of all, you can see the need for escape. That's getting out of situ- out of something. Well, you know, of course, the condition of the human race, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, is in a condition of death, spiritual death, uh, being um, dead in your sins, in a condition of being uh, condemned without God and without hope in this world. That's what the Bible says. There is an escape that's needed from that condition to be brought into all that God has for us. There is escape from sin. There is escape from the wrath of God, which is very much deserving to uh, guilty sinners. So it says, how shall we escape? Now, wait a minute. 
the question is raised, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? To neglect something is not necessarily to oppose it. It just means to let it go, to kind of let it fall apart. How shall we escape if we neglect so great? This tells the magnitude how wonderful it is, how awesome it is, how powerful it is, so great a salvation. So putting those thoughts all together, let me ask the question that Hebrews 2.3 raises and think about this. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Hebrews really deals with that question and with that problem. Before we begin in this first installment of this series, and uh, by the way, this will be an introduction to our study of the book of Hebrews, let's take some time right now and look to God in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your heart of infinite love, infinite holiness, infinite righteousness. And dear Father, we thank you so much for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is fully and perfectly God and fully and perfectly without sin, man. Thank you, Lord, for the great love that you have expressed in the giving of your Son. As it says, Lord, in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever would believe on him would not perish but have everlasting life. And then, Lord, it says in Romans 5 that you demonstrate your love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, we would see Jesus more than anything, Lord, through your word, the Bible, through the working of the Spirit. Father, we would see Jesus. We would see him more clearly. We would know him. And we would experience him in our life in a way perhaps as never before. Father, as we go into this study in your word, we thank you for your word, the Bible. And yet, Lord, we recognize that it is your divine word that the Spirit breathed these very words of the Bible and this book of Hebrews. And so, Father, not relying upon our humanity, our human understanding, our human perception, our flesh, Lord, we look to you. And, Father, I pray that by the Spirit, uh, you would grant unto us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you, that we may know the hope of our calling, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and your exceedingly great power toward us who believe. And we thank you, Lord, for doing that. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, what a difference approaching the Word of God with the Holy Spirit of God to bring that enlightenment, to bring that understanding. And, and I want to let you know, friend, that God is eager to do that. He's not standing away off saying, well, you didn't pray that prayer right. Well, I don't know if I'll do that for you. James 1 tells us that God is generous and he gives without finding fault. Oh, I'm so glad that's true. I'm so glad that God is generous. That means he has resources way beyond what I need. 
Secondly, I'm so glad that he gives generously without finding fault. I don't know about you, but I've got lots of faults. And I'm so glad that he gives so generously to one such as I who has so many faults. Well, with the confidence of the Spirit's help, let's move forward into this study, this introduction of the book of Hebrews. First of all, the book of Hebrews has a lot to do with covenants. It's extremely important to understand what a covenant is. By way of definition, a covenant is, well, it's it's a contract, but my goodness, it's so much more than a contract between two parties. You know, first of all, there are two parties, and there is sort of this contractual relationship, but again, it's way beyond our customary way of uh, thinking of contracts. Really, a covenant is a relationship of faithfulness between two parties. It is a relationship of faithfulness between two parties. And it features such things as mutual obligations and mutual benefits. And it can also talk about mutual, well, negative consequences in the failure of performance. Covenants have been forged for thousands of years between people, between nations, and between God and man. One covenant that uh, I'd like to perhaps draw to your attention is the covenant of marriage. And again, this fulfills the definition of a relationship of faithfulness between two parties. You have a man and a wife, and you have the relationship, a love relationship. And of course, the hallmark of that love relationship is an exclusive faithfulness between the two of them. That is the covenant of marriage. So again, we're talking about the idea of covenant, what covenant is, and that the fact is in the book of Hebrews, it talks a lot about covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant. Now, let me ask you this question. Why should God make a covenant? I mean, after all, it is impossible for God to lie. In fact, in James, it says, don't even swear an oath. In other words, when God says yes, he means yes. When he says no, he means no. He doesn't need to raise his hand and swear an oath. He doesn't even need to say, well, I promise I'll do it. God is the perfection of infinite integrity. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do? Has he not spoken and will he not make it good? Numbers twenty three nineteen. So why, why would God need to make a covenant? Well, I'll tell you, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, the answer why he does it. And it's not for his benefit. It's for our benefits. In fact, it is for our strong consolation, our strong encouragement. Let me read these two verses from Hebrews chapter 6, again, verses 17 and 18. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose... He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Aren't those great verses? Hebrews 6, verses 17 and 18. So you see, God is trying to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise 
just how faithful he really is. And he demonstrates that to us by making a promise and swearing an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, those that promise that God makes and the oath that he fulfills and the fact that it's impossible for him to lie, we who have fled for refuge. You know, you don't flee for refuge unless you are in a situation of great peril, great danger. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. You know, if you are in a desperate situation, what you flee to for refuge, you better make sure it is something stable, solid, and will deliver in preserving you. Well, God himself puts his own reputation on the line, and he does that through the covenant. Now, the book of Hebrews is about two covenants and two primary covenants found in the entire Bible the Old Covenant, and the New Covenant. First of all, the Old Covenant is the covenant of law. It's based on man's performance. It is the exact opposite of grace and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant law was added because of transgressions, Galatians 3.19. The law covenant, the Old Covenant, makes the sinner, one lost without Christ, aware of the extreme malignity of sin in his life. The Bible says that the law, the old covenant, holds the whole world guilty of sin. Romans three nineteen and 20. The old covenant is based upon our performance, resulting in our inevitable failure in sin. And according to the book of Hebrews, the old covenant is vastly inferior to the new covenant. You see, the Old Covenant has a place. The law has a place. It isn't to make anyone righteous. (laughs) That's one of the misconceptions that people have. The law is meant to prove to sinners just how sinful they are. It proves man to be a sinner and a failure. And the law is very good at doing that. The law brings, therefore, death, condemnation, and wrath. Let me say it again, and perhaps in a slightly different way. The Old Covenant, the law, is meant to prove to the sinner what a bad sinner they are and then drive them to call out for a good Savior. The Old Covenant, the law, has has an outcome. And the outcome, by proving to the sinner their own failing, the, the fact that they're in a condition of spiritual death, it causes that sinner to cry out beyond themselves like a man who's drowning for rescue, for help, for a Savior. Now, I said that the book of Hebrews is about uh, two covenants, uh, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and uh, Hebrews is chiefly about the New Covenant. It is the covenant of grace received by faith in Christ. Let me say that again. The new covenant is the covenant of grace received by faith in Christ. The new covenant is the provision of a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. The new covenant is about the infinitely perfect and finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. In fact, Jesus, who is perfect, so perfectly finishes his work that he therefore completely fulfills and settles the covenant of law, the old covenant. 
And that makes possible the setting aside of the covenant of law so that the new covenant is established, the covenant of grace. That's in Hebrews chapter 8. You see, the new covenant is about all the blessing and inheritance we receive in Christ, not because of our perfection or performance. Oh, no, no, no. But because of the perfection and performance of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, when it's when that happens, God alone receives the glory. Friend, let me plant a thought in your mind that's very key to bear in mind as we go through the book of Hebrews. When you get to the end of the road, at the end of your life, God is not going to praise you for how good you are. You are going to praise him for how good he is. Let me say that again. When you get to the end of the road, God is not going to praise you for how good you are You are going to praise him for how good he is. I want to say right now that the grace of God is intimately bound up and bound to the glory of God. There will come a point as you begin to understand the grace of God. And remember, the new covenant is the covenant of grace. But as you begin to understand the the grace of God more and more, you're going to get to a point, and I've gotten to this point more than once, where you'll say to God, Lord, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this good to me? I am so undeserving, and yet you pour out such wonderful love and blessing. My friend, the answer to that is because there is no way that God can get more glory from a man apart from his grace. There is no way that man can then God can get glory from a man apart from his grace. God's grace and his glory are tied together. Now, in this introduction to the book of Hebrews, uh, one of the striking things about the book of Hebrews is really the comparison between the old covenant, the covenant of law, and the new covenant, the covenant of grace. And really the much mores of the new covenant over the old covenant. So let me just go through several of these verses and you'll understand what I'm talking about. In Hebrews 1, 4, it says, Having become so much better than the angels, speaking of Jesus, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So the old covenant was administered through angels, brought forward from angels, but this new covenant is by the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's so much better, so much more. Hebrews 3.3 3 says this, again, speaking of now the comparison is between Jesus and Moses. For this one, Jesus, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. Hebrews 3.3 3. In Hebrews 6.17, and we mentioned this just a few minutes ago, thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. So God, through the new covenant, shows us something more abundantly. Again, right now, I'm just going through the much mores of the new covenant. In uh, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 19, it says this, For the law made nothing perfect, 
On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Hebrews 7.19. In Hebrews 7.22, it says, By so much more, Jesus has become a surety or guarantee of a better covenant. Now, this next verse, Hebrews 8.6, is really a very dramatic um, illustration of the much better of the new covenant versus the old covenant. Here's what it says, speaking of Jesus, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. So we see there that Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry. Second, that he is mediator of a better covenant. And it's a covenant that is established on better promises. Check that one out in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. In Hebrews 9, verse 11, it says this, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. Hebrews 9, 11. And one more, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, of these much mores of the new covenant. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That's in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. So you can see quite clearly even now that the book of Hebrews and specifically the New Covenant is so much more, so much greater, so much better than the Old Covenant, the Covenant of Law. Now, this next thing that I want to point out may seem kind of obvious at the very beginning, but it's funny how we kind of uh, tend to gloss over the obvious and not pay attention to it, and that is this. It is important to consider the context of Hebrews, and specifically who it was written to. The book of Hebrews was not written to the Chinese. It wasn't written to the Indian. It wasn't written to the Arab. It was written to the Hebrews, to Jews, to Jews who were saved. Now remember uh, that the early believers, the very first believers, Uh, after the Lord Jesus Christ died, resurrected, and ascended into heaven, the very first believers were Jews. They were Messianic Jews. And so the book of Hebrews is written to Jews who were saved, having truly uh, believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, having exercised saving faith in the Messiah, Jesus. It is also written to Jews who were unsaved, Now, that may seem a little bit odd at first, but I want you to think about the typical church congregation and and even think about your own congregation. There are those, many of those who are in your congregation who are saved. They have received the Lord Jesus Christ. They have believed on him. They have exercised saving faith. They're born again. But within your congregation, there is likely to be some who are unsaved, and yet they're sitting there. They're hearing the same preaching you're hearing. They're opening up the same Bible you're opening up. But just because you hear preaching, just because you read the Bible, just because you sing in the choir doesn't mean you're saved. That's really dabbling in Christianity, isn't it? What saves us? Faith in the Savior. And so just like 
it happens today, there were some Jews who were unsaved. They were dabbling in Christianity, and yet they were still embracing the old covenant system. Look, folks, you know, when the church started, they were just a small kind of ragtag group of people. They were f- facing a system, if you will, the Jewish system, that had been around for thousands of years. There was an incredible temple and the whole sacrificial system. I mean, everything about it was big. And here are these Christians who are meeting in their homes. Sometimes they're meeting in temple courts. They were definitely a subset within uh, this group of Jews. And so there are those that were rather uh, overwhelmed by uh, Judaism and all the practices of Judaism. They were dabbling in Christianity, yet still embracing the old covenant system. There were some who had heard and received much about Christianity. However, just like there might be some in our congregations, they did not place their personal faith and trust in Christ alone. And so the book of Hebrews is speaking to both of those people. Now, just because I've said that it's written to Hebrews does not mean that it's not does not have value to us today. I'm not saying that at all. But if we ignore the fact of who it was originally written to, we can forget the unique challenges that they faced. See, you and I don't have the temptation to go in our backyard and, and offer, uh, you know, a sacrifice. Or, or run to the temple, you know, and, and offer a sacrifice. They did. And there were challenges that they faced that we generally don't face. Let me say this, that the uh, book of Hebrews is about the old versus the new. The old is fulfilled in Christ and set aside because it is no longer needed. The old covenant of law works versus the new covenant of grace. There's the old priesthood that had to continue endlessly because they sinned and died versus Jesus as the great eternal high priest who has an eternal priesthood because he lives forever. He has the power of an indestructible life, Hebrews chapter 7. In the old, there's the old sacrifices, many, many, uh, much blood of bulls and sheep, and it was only a covering of sins which God really wasn't pleased with, versus the one perfect sacrifice forever of Jesus and his perfect blood, which removes our sins, the remission of sins. The old covenant sacrifices were a constant reminder of sin because they only provided the blood of animals offered by a sinful man, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, and uh, Hebrews 9, 6, versus the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Uh, that the new covenant provides perfect cleansing and redemption once for all. Hebrews 9, verses 11 to 15, and Hebrews 10, verses 5 to 10. Now I want to talk about one of the features of the book of Hebrews that can easily trip us up if we don't understand it, and that is the warnings of Hebrews. And I go back to what I said a few moments ago about the fact that the book of Hebrews is written to Hebrews, to Jews, to believing Jews who had put their personal faith and trust in the Messiah, Jesus, and to those Jews who were interested, dabbling, but not putting their complete faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And there are warnings that are in the book of Hebrews. 
But let me say this. The book of Hebrews is not about you and your performance. It is about Jesus and his perfect performance. The book of Hebrews is not about what you do for God. That's law. It's not about your failures. Again, that's law. And our failures are many compared to Jesus. The book of Hebrews is about the Lord Jesus Christ and the perfection of him and his perfect finished work for you. And it's important to keep the admonitions and warnings of Hebrews in the light of what I just said. The book of Hebrews is not centered around you, pass or fail. It is centered around Jesus and his perfection and who he is, and he always passes. He always succeeds. In fact, he's finished because he did it right the first time. You see, the admonitions and the warnings in the book of Hebrews are about turning to Jesus. They're admonishing them. Turn to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Rely upon Jesus alone. Don't mix your faith in Jesus with the law system. And a prime example of this is in Hebrews chapter 10. There's a stern warning in Hebrews uh, 10, and yet the beginning of Hebrews 10 brings a crescendo of all the themes of the perfection of Jesus Christ and his finished perfect work. And then in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 10, uh, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, it says this, speaking of Jesus, then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first, speaking of the old covenant of law, in order to establish the second. That's the new covenant of grace. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Now, friend, what could be more clear than this? Jesus did the will of God perfectly, completely, to the point where we have been made perfect, we have been sanctified through that offering and his obedience once for all. Now, just a few verses later in Hebrews chapter 10 comes a stern warning in verses 26 to 31 not to continue in sin by rejecting Jesus Christ and his perfect finished work. And yet people uh, use that those verses and similar verses over in Hebrews chapter 6 to prove that somehow a Christian could lose their salvation. Now, friend, I have a lot of compassion on that position, uh, using those verses to make the case that one could lose their salvation, because quite frankly, I believe that and taught that for decades. But see, those verses being used to somehow teach that you can lose your salvation completely upend everything else that the book of Hebrews is teaching. The book of Hebrews is not about your performance. It's not about you doing good and getting good and doing bad and getting bad. The book of Hebrews is about the new covenant. It's about Jesus and all he has accomplished for you. It is about trusting and having faith in Jesus Christ alone. Let me walk through each of these warnings very quickly uh, because there, there's a common message in all of them. Uh, warning number one is uh, found in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And this is really the key warning. 
do not neglect so great a salvation. Here's what it says in those verses. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. That's Hebrews 2 verses 1 through 4. First of all, note it says, Give earnest heed to the things we have heard. Then it says, How shall we escape? If we neglect so great a salvation, there is no other way of escape than Jesus. The only way of this salvation is the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the glorious truth in these verses is that we do have such a great salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, warning number two is found in Hebrews 3, verses 12 through 15, and it's about not having an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Here's the verses. Uh, Hebrews three twelve to 15. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. That's in Hebrews three twelve to 15. You see, the glorious truth in these verses is that we have a living God who is able to perform all. And again, you've got some hearers and even some people who will encounter the book of Hebrews today who are reading it, but they have as yet to place their trust and faith in the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Warning number three is found in Hebrews 4, verses 1 to 13. I'm not going to read all of these verses, but basically it's an exhortation to enter God's rest. What is that rest? It is the rest of the finished work of Christ. It's saying, don't fall short of this, as Israel of old did. That is relying upon your works, your righteousness, rather than resting on what, uh, resting because God has rested. And God is resting not because he's tired. God is resting because his work is finished. That is why God rests. Boy, that's powerful truth. Warning number four. This is found in Hebrews 5, 12 to 14, and Hebrews 6, 1 to 3. Basically, this uh, series of verses means it's time to grow up in the word of righteousness. Now, note that. It says, the word of righteousness. And the word of righteousness is not your righteousness. That's a counterfeit righteousness. It is the righteousness of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the glorious truth, the righteousness of Christ. Remember what Romans 1.17 says, and that verse is considered by many the birth verse of the Reformation. It says, For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. It is by faith, from faith to faith, as it is written, the just will live by faith. So Romans 1.17 says, 
that the glorious truth of the gospel is not your righteousness. It is the righteousness of God by faith in Christ. The fifth warning in the book of Hebrews is found in Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 8, and it deals with falling completely away, total apostasy. And those that are warned are those who have heard the word of God. They've witnessed the power of God. They've even shared in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And yet they completely deny Christ. They utterly fall away. This is a total apostasy. It's public. It says here in Hebrews 6 that they crucify Christ again for themselves. Now, someone might see those verses and think, well, that sure sounds like a a Christian, someone who's heard the word and witnessed the power of God, been a sharer of the things of the Holy Spirit. But it's not a Christian. In fact, I can tell you of someone in the Scripture that fits that bill to a T. And it's a person, one word, five letters, first letter is J, last letter is S, and I'm referring to the person of Judas. I mean, he heard the Word of God right from the lips of Jesus. He witnessed the power of God firsthand, again, through the person of Jesus Christ. And he cast out demons. He did many miraculous signs. Oh, yes, he did. It's recorded along with the other disciples in the Gospels. And yet, what did he do? He totally denied the Lord Jesus Christ. He he totally fell away. That's what's being talked about in Hebrews 6, 4 to 8. And yet, there's the glorious truth in Hebrews 6, 9. It says, but beloved, We are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. You see, there are indeed wonderful things that accompany genuine salvation. The sixth warning in the book of Hebrews is found in Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. We mentioned this briefly earlier. It's similar to the warning in chapter 6 about total apostasy. And this is... Uh, someone who commits willful sins of trampling the Son of God underfoot, 29b, counting the blood of the covenant by which he is sanctified, a common profane thing, 29c, and he has insulted the Spirit of grace, 29d. You see, this warning here is about a person who has so utterly disregarded and disparaged Jesus Christ, and that person is doomed to face a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Verse 27, and yet in this warning in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses 5 to 21, it says in the previous verses, and I shared this with you, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So the first part of Hebrews is all about the finished work of Christ and our security in that. Does the book, does the uh, writer of Hebrews lose his mind in the warnings? No, because the warning is not applied to a Christian. It's applied to someone who is fooling around and not truly trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the bottom line of these warnings. First, God has provided such a great salvation, one that we should not neglect. Two, our only hope is in the living God to whom we must turn. Three, Christ in the perfection of his person has accomplished all. Fourth, don't turn to any other. Go to Jesus and trust in him alone. 
Now, look, if those explanations didn't satisfy you, we will be dealing with it in much greater depth as we go through each of those passages one by one in our upcoming study. One of the hallmarks of uh, the book of Hebrews is this phrase, consider Jesus, therefore consider Jesus. This is found in Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It says this, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses was faithful in all his house. For this one, speaking of Jesus, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. That's in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. I underline this phrase, consider Jesus, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. That should be the the locking in of our attention. It's a focus on the perfection of Jesus and his finished, perfect work on our behalf. That's the whole point of Hebrews. That is what Hebrews is all about. And the warnings basically say, look, if you trust in anything else, you're gone. You're dead. You're facing fiery indignation. See, in these verses here in Hebrews 3, 1 to 4, Moses represents the law in the Old Covenant. It says, consider Jesus the apostle, one sent from God, and high priest. Jesus represents the New Covenant. You see, there's two covenants and two men. There's the Old Covenant, the covenant of law, and the centerpiece of that is Moses, who is a mere man, a sinner. He was born under the curse. Moses' father was Adam. And then there is the new covenant, the covenant of grace. This man is Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man. He never sinned. He is infinitely holy, righteous, and good. Jesus was born not of Adam. He was born of the Spirit. His Father is God the Father. Now let me say this, friend, and this is extraordinarily important. Oh, how many Christians are are, uh, guilty of this, this trouble and this mistake. Boy, I was for many years. When we mix in law with grace, the old covenant with the new covenant, you see what we're really doing is we're saying that Jesus Christ is not enough, that we need something more. You see, this is saying that in some things, Moses is better than Jesus. This is saying that in some things, our efforts, striving, and works are better than Jesus and his completed work. My friend, when we are mixing in law with grace, what we are doing is we are buying into, uh, this is going to be hard, but you need to hear it. We are buying into the spirit of Antichrist. Now, hold on. I know that seems very drastic. Antichrist is a term in the Bible, and it is comes from the uh, Greek word antichristos, antichristos. Anti does not mean opposed to, it means instead of. Christos means Christ. So antichristos literally means instead of Christ. Now when you think of all of what the devil wants to try to do, 
all of his deceptions, all of his efforts, all of his scheming is going after just one thing with you. No, not to get you to sin more. Oh yeah, he wants you to sin more. But fundamentally, the deceiver, the father of lies, Satan, is trying to get you to buy into this spirit of instead of Christ. And when you look at all the striving and the struggling of your Christian life, you will find a common denominator. I, me, my. All of those personal pronouns. You, instead of Jesus, him, who he is, what he's accomplished. Remember in Romans chapter 7, those failure verses where he says, the thing I don't want to do is the thing I do and, and so forth. On and on. What's remarkable about those seven verses or so in Romans 7 is how many times the personal pronoun is used. You see, that's the, that's the flesh. And people think that if they could just try harder, strive harder, that somehow that's pleasing to God. My friend, get off it. That dishonors God. The only thing that pleases God the Father, who is infinitely holy, infinitely righteous, and infinitely good, is His own Son. And if you try to please God, if you try to live your Christian life on the basis of what you do for God, that's called performance-based Christianity, friend, you will fail, and you need to fail. Because if you could somehow pull it off, if you could somehow pull off good in your life based upon your flesh, your self-righteousness and what you do, that means that God would have to get down on his knees and worship you. And that is an abomination. That is idolatry. That is sin. I know I'm saying tough things, but we need to wise up and realize what's really going on when we play this game of mixing law with grace. Grace alone is what gives God glory. Grace is God loving you, blessing you, doing good for you, not because of how good you are, but because of how good he is, expressed through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, my friend, when we do indeed mix law with grace, the old covenant with the new, we are indeed saying that Jesus Christ is not enough, that we need something more. That's the spirit of Antichrist, and this is not entering his rest. Well, if what I've said has perhaps opened up more questions than perhaps given you answers. Aren't you glad we've got a whole series to go through? I think that as we travel through these things, these themes will come up over and over and over again, because that's what's brought up in the book of Hebrews. I think slowly, gradually, carefully, the truth and the glory of the new covenant will become increasingly clear. Friend, my pledge to you is that I will stick to the Bible. I will teach the Bible. This isn't my teaching. This isn't some man's teaching. This is what the Word of God says. This is what the book of Hebrews says. I ask you to be diligent to study the book for yourself. I ask you to be diligent to listen to this series. And I ask you, by faith, to look to Jesus, 
the author and the finisher of your faith, my faith, and trust him to make it all clear and plain to you. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for this one who is indeed the apostle and high priest of our confession. Father, I am so thankful that Jesus is faithful to you and he completed all, that he is the one who is counted worthy of more glory than Moses because, Lord, he is the one who builds the house. Father, I just thank you that you are so good, you are so holy, you are so righteous, you are so faithful. Lord, our Christianity is not about how good or righteous or faithful we are. Our goodness and our righteousness and our faithfulness comes from you. For every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, in whom there is no shadow of turning or variation. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you are good. And Father, I pray that you will take this word that we have been sharing today by your Spirit. You would continue working in our hearts, transforming us into the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.